It's our kids to children's ministry, and you may have a seat if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've been working through a series discussing the Lord's table. That's part of a series. We're like, we're like, uh, we're several layers into this situation right now. This is a difficult thing to explain if you're visiting. It is like Inception. Yes, it's the Inception Bible series. Uh, so, so we're actually support, we're, we're going through Acts two, and we're looking at the works, the the activities that the early disciples devoted themselves to, as it's described in Acts two forty two and forty three. And we looked for four weeks at the apostles' teaching. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We looked for for three or four weeks at the fellowship and the definition of fellowship. And now we come to the conclusion of our third sub-series where it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So we've been looking at what the Lord's table means for us and what we should be thinking about as we participate in the Lord's table. And I prayed uh, Titus 2 to begin with because I love the phrase that the grace of God has appeared and that that grace is training us. I love the idea that grace, God's grace, trains us. And that's been something I've thought a lot about as I've thought about communion, the Lord's table. The Lord's table being this, this for us, weekly exposure, weekly calling to mind of the grace of God. And when we call to mind the grace of God, it should have a practical effect in our lives. And so I've been thinking, well, how does the Lord's table train us? And we looked at that some last week, and that sermon has not been posted online yet. It will be uh, tomorrow along with this one. But today we're going to continue thinking about how the Lord's table trains us, and we're going to continue thinking about something we started talking about last week, which is the issue of discernment. Now, we're talking about food when we talk about the Lord's table. It's not an accident that God chose to to use food as a as a way to bring to mem- to mind uh, the gospel. And we're talking about food, and when we talk about food, the issue of discernment comes up immediately. Because from the very beginning, the basic story of food in reality is this. You can eat almost anything, but there are a few things you can't eat. And if you eat the things you're not supposed to eat, you're going to die. Right? So that's sort of, the, um, that's sort of the, the basic pattern that God wove into the human experience from the very beginning in Genesis. Most of this stuff you can eat. This you can't eat. And if you eat this, you'll die. Now we see that continuing in, in our sort of post-fall reality with things like blowfish or the wrong mushrooms, you know? Like, like this is still a thing. Discernment is still necessary, you know? I think we have, um, oh my goodness, an elderberry tree down at the edge of this parking lot. I don't know, does anyone know that we have an elderberry tree down there? I think there's an elderberry tree down there. I ate one elderberry. I'm still alive. So it may be an elderberry tree. That's one step in proving its elderberryness is I'm still alive. That whole issue of you can eat stuff and be okay, but there's some stuff if you eat it wrongly, like blowfish, wrongly prepared, or, uh, or mushrooms, if you, if you pick the wrong mushroom, you're going to die. And one of the interesting things about this fabric of discernment that's woven into our whole human experience is that generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, it sort of works like this way. If you don't eat, eventually you'll die, right? Like, eventually you're going to have to eat something. But if you eat the wrong thing, you could die right away. So that the favor, the tilt, 
goes toward what? Discernment and patience and caution. Like, you can go a while without eating, but if you eat the wrong thing, you're dead. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the message that's carried through several food stories in the book of Genesis, including Esau when he returns hungry from the field. It's like, dude, just you went this long without eating, just wait a little while longer. But instead he ate the wrong thing, which was an, a meal of extortion, right? And he, he suffered a death. He suffered a loss. So this idea that discernment is wrapped up within how we eat is, is like all over Scripture. And one of the places where this comes, to, uh, comes up pretty clearly is in this psalm that I read a couple days ago, Psalm 106. Let me just read three verses from Psalm 106. But soon they forgot his works... They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert and gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. So obviously in the Garden of Eden, the message is on the day that you will eat this, you will die. And so this idea of a favor of discernment is to wait, is to proceed with caution, is to slow down in in, in the garden, that death is immediate. It's an immediate spiritual death. In Psalm 106, the description is of a group of people who had just been released from Egypt. They had just celebrated the Passover. And they were wandering around in the desert, and they began to crave what? Meat. They began to crave meat. And they began to grumble against God, saying, We want meat. We're tired of this manna. We miss all the stuff we used to eat in Egypt in our slavery, and they begin to grumble against God. So God gives them quail, but as soon as they partake of the quail, they experience judgment. And that judgment is described in Psalm 106 as a wasting disease. So not all spiritually, not all discernment fails lead to immediate death. Sometimes a discernment fail just makes you sick and you kind of waste away. Now I'm giving you all of that as an introduction to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, where Paul is teaching the Corinthians about the Lord's table, and he is, he is extremely perturbed at them for the way they're practicing the Lord's table. We'll talk about that today. But in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's a familiar pattern in Scripture. And then he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So somehow in the Corinthian church, their failure to discern this, the Lord's table correctly, is causing them to fall into that pattern that we see established throughout Scripture, the lack of discernment leading to death, sometimes immediate sometimes wasting. That sick, weak, ill, and some have died kind of sounds to me like a wasting disease. And I think you can imagine the parallels here. The Lord Jesus gives the Passover meal as the new Lord's table. Christians celebrate it faithfully for a while, and then they veer off course, and they go into this sort of hasty, craving, problematic treatment of the Lord's table. Well, that's the same thing Israel did after the Passover, right? They have this dramatic, wonderful moment of the Passover, and then they kind of wane into this new level of faithlessness, and they get a wasting disease as judgment. So what's going on in the Corinthian church that would cause them to be weak, ill, 
and die. Well, look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 11. This is Paul's opening statement about the Lord's table and their practice of it, their wrong practice of it. Verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What's causing this weak, ill, and dying judgment, this wasting disease they're experiencing following a pattern we see in the Old Testament? Their failure to rightly discern what is actually happening and what is supposed to be happening at the Lord's table. It says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. I'm going to start by saying that the first way we could maybe talk talk about what's happening here has to do with their lack of waiting. Their lack of the patience part of discernment. They're being hasty. Okay? So it says that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So hastiness is a key part of the problem. It's a key part of their lack of discernment, which I think we understand. Like You can't be hasty and discerning. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. So again in verse 33, just to show you that I think this is a main issue that Paul's addressing, in verse 33... As he's concluding his talks about this, he says, he says something like that again. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So part of the ongoing story of sin involves wanting a good thing before it is time. That's, that's a basic part of what sin is. Wanting a good thing before it is time. Many of our sins confirm or affirm the goodness of God, even in spite of ourselves, because we desire things that God has indeed called good. Many of our sins, many of our idolatries are related after the craving for good things. Some people think that that may have even been true with the forbidden fruit, that there may have been this idea that the forbidden fruit was a later fruit. A fruit for later. Irenaeus, I believe, held this way of thinking, so that even in the garden there was this idea that patience was needed and so forth. But I'm not so sure about that either way. But the theme itself bears out throughout Scripture, and that is, is that most of the time when God's people fall into trouble, it's not a question of them wanting something God doesn't want for them. It's them wanting it in a way and at a time that God doesn't want for them. Think back to Psalm 106 where Israel is craving meat in the wilderness. Well, <coughs> what made that a wanton craving? Was it because like, they were all supposed to be vegetarians? No, actually not. 
the land flowing with milk and honey was also flowing with like deer and rabbits and cows. Like, like they were going to get meat. That was going to happen. That was in their future. The wantonness of their craving was that they couldn't wait for God to provide that blessing to them in his time. They were hasty. They were impatient with the Lord. And so much of our sin boils down to the Veruca Salt style of sin. If you're familiar with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the canonical film, the first one, 1971, not the most recent one with Johnny Depp. Thank you. You can go on YouTube and rewatch that scene with Veruca Salt. You know, I want it now. I want it now. And one of the things you can see, I think this is in the book as well, is the only parent to be judged in all of the bad children is this father who enables the impatience of his daughter. So like the, the, the basic literary definition of a bad father is to cave in to the impatience of a Veruca Salt type. And guys, like that's us. That's a big part of our sin is a hastiness and an impatience, the right identification of a good thing, and then the hasty, impatient insistence that God give it to us now. And of course, in literature, the, God, the father who caves in is a bad father. That's the really interesting thing about that character is that he's actually the bad guy. Veruca Salt isn't the bad. It's kind of true of all the characters. The parents are the problem, right? But especially with, with her, she is never told no. And the whole way the narrative is set up is essentially like, you are abusing this girl by not telling her no, by refusing to tell her no. You're actually engaged in a form of psychological child abuse. So we have a good father, and he says no. And most of the time what he says no, because, friends, if you're in Christ, you're headed to an eternal, an eternal glory that is just just rich, I mean, lavish, beautiful. So, so when God says no to a pleasure in particular, it's really just sort of a not yet. You know, even, even, even pleasures that need to be considerably redeemed will be redeemed, and they will be far more pleasurable in that moment in the future. So hastiness is sort of a problem. It's not sort of a problem. It's a main problem. It's a main problem that hurts our souls and it's damaging their experience of grace at the Lord's table. It's screwing up the Lord's table so bad that Paul says it's not even the Lord's table anymore. Like, you've screwed it up so bad, it's not even the table. Hastiness is the problem. Hastiness is really something, I don't know if we realize, how badly impatience hurts our souls. I don't think we understand how badly impatience hurts our souls. But because discernment needs time... When we begin in, become impatient and hasty, we throw discernment out the window and we start eating blowfish, spiritual blowfish, right? We start eating poisons. So, so there's a couple passages. For instance, 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, there's that word craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what I want you to see is, is that a failure to discern, a failure to slow down and discern, hastiness and impatience is sort of the spiritual equivalent of poisoning yourself. It's, it's the spiritual equivalent of making yourself weak, ill, and dead. 1 Peter 2.11, 
Beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's like, this, it's like you're eating things that are bad for you. Stop. Discern. Look at what you're eating. Is it good for you? And of course, the Lord's table is here as a reminder of what is good for us. And that is Christ. Right? The Lord's table is here as a reminder of, like, this is good for you. But it's also here to train us to slow down and discern and partake with caution. A lot of people have asked questions about, well, what is the fencing of the table look like and what is the appropriate level of warning a pastor should issue before he uh before he serves the lord's table and i can't discuss all of that today but i honestly believe that the weight of the passage is mostly this slow down see christ slow down see christ and in doing that weekly week after week you are training yourself, as we spoke of last week, to see the deeper meaning behind all of God's created reality and see Christ as exalted in all things. So let me just give you some, some ways that slowing down and seeing Christ will help you as you participate not only in the Lord's table, but as you live your life. Well, the first one is this, as we spoke about last week. There is a deeper mining, a meaning behind every created thing that God built into that created thing for all time. So what you need to learn to do with the elements first and then with the rest of the world is you need to be able to slow down and see the deeper meaning behind the stuff and circumstances of your life. And by the way, the deeper meaning is always Christ. For in him and through him and for him are all things. So I, I, I talked about that extensively last week, and if you weren't here, you can review that. In your own time. But the first thing is, is what does it mean to discern and like how does that help with, with the Lord's table is just slow yourself down and train yourself to see the deeper meaning in God's created things and in God's created circumstances. So you're in a moment in time and you have these elements in your hand. And what you need to begin to do is to train yourself to see all the way through down the levels into the rabbit hole that this is really about Jesus. So there's a mental discipline. There's discernment involved. The second thing you should do as you participate in the Lord's table is you should discern the Son. You should, should discern Jesus sacrificed or given for you. And why does that matter? Well, because the root of our hasty sins is this, uh, this, this, this slandering flesh inside of us that says God is not good because he's withholding or God won't give, or God can't be trusted to deliver in his time, or his timing is just mean, right? And so the Lord's table is a weekly opportunity for you to say, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him to us, how will he not also freely give us all things? The gospel is, a, is, is really a remarkable, constant message to your ungrateful soul, that God is generous. It's a remarkable message to your hasty soul that at just the right time, God gave his son for us while we were helpless and while we were enemies so that God's character is revealed through the Lord's table. 
God's timing and his sovereign wisdom are revealed through the Lord's table and so on and so forth. So that you see clearly that it is not that, that the absence of this pleasure for which you are in hasty impatience, this ab- the absence of this, this thing, this thing you want God to do is definitely not an expression of his lack of love for you, of his lack of wisdom or ability or generosity. Because if he gave us his son at the exact right time, then how will he not also freely give us all things? So those are two really big deal things to think about as we slow down and partake of the Lord's table. Number one, God, I'm a priest. You've called me to be part of the nation, a nation of priests. Priests discern. Here I hold in my hands uh, bread that was baked and wine that was fermented. And I'm holding these in my hands. They're physical things. And yet they testify to a deeper, truer spiritual reality. Lord, if you would give me the grace to walk through the world day by day and see all of the created things in this world for what they really are, testimonies of the goodness of God, testimonies of the trueness of Christ, if you would give me the power to be a discerning priest in everything, in all of the stuff and circumstances in my life, please, Lord, do that. Number two. Lord, I hold in my hand the bread and the, bo- the, the, the broken body and blood of Jesus. Not literally, but that's what I'm supposed to be thinking about right now. And the fact that you would allow yourself to condescend to earth and take on our being, our manner of being, and all of our weaknesses and limitations, and you would allow yourself to be crucified on a cross for the redemption of our souls, help me to never doubt that you are for me. Help me to never doubt that you are generous. Help me to never doubt that you are skillful and wise in the timing in which you provide your good things, Lord. Wipe away all of the things inside of me right now that would like to say, ha-ha, God is not good, God is not for me, God is not real. Wipe it all away as I right now reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ was given to save my soul when I did not deserve it when I didn't even know I needed it. That's such an irony, isn't it? It's such an God's greatest provision to you came when you did not even know you needed it, and now you have something in mind that you want God to do for you, and you're like, d- doubting. It's like, he knew what the right thing was before you even knew you needed this thing. We don't need to doubt his capacity or his intentions toward us. So a lot of that we've covered. And today I really want to close by emphasizing the third point. So I discern the deeper meaning, discern Jesus and the sacrifice. But let's talk about discerning the value of people. Because that seems to be built, that seems to be hardwired into this text pretty deeply. Discern the value of people. Here's the deal. If the Corinthians had valued their weaker brothers and sisters, they would have slowed down. Loving weaker people slows you down. And there are many times, many, many, many times, when slowing down is exactly what you need. Because you can't be discerning if you're not slowing down. I hope this doesn't, what I'm about to share, doesn't come across as any form of gloating. I've checked my heart. I don't think that, I don't think that that's there. 
I I have been um, largely largely spared from the plague of pornography that has descended on the men of my generation. I'm not going to claim that I've been untouched. Only that for whatever reason, I haven't been consumed by it as so many others have. Now, I know for, I know, I don't think for one second that's because of something good in me. But as I've walked with people I love for many years now through this issue, I have asked myself if there is anything that I could say has been different. Here's one thing I think may be different. I was taught very deliberately from my childhood by my parents that a broken person is a sacred thing. I can't get into all of what that meant for me as a child. But, you know, every parent has their strengths and every parent has their sort of thing. You know, some of you grew up with worldview parents, you know. Some of you grew up with, you know, some of you grew up with prayer parents. Well, you know, like all, every parent, we're all, we're all terribly uneven. Uh, we're, all, we're all screwed up. But, you know, like whatever that strength was, it probably did actually help you more than you want to admit. And I had parents who, and I don't know why this is, had this deep regard and awe for broken people. I really was, you know, indoctrinated is probably the, the right word. I was indoctrinated to believe that a wounded person is a sacred trust put in front of you by God. And that the only strength, that if I have a strength over another person, that that's a sacred thing too. And that God's going to really pay attention to what I do with my strength when I'm standing in front of a broken person. And that that people are very often used and thrown away like Kleenex. And that there is a lot of glory and good in going to the waste bins of the world and finding real human beings there who need to be loved and cared for and served. And that those people matter and that if you had to trade your life for one of those people, it would be fine. It would, it would be the height of evil for us to come and you gave your life for an orphan in Africa or for a, you went to a hard place in KCK and were shot. It would be the height of evil for any of us at your funeral to say, what a waste. Your life is no more important than theirs. So I, I was taught that. and I, Um... And I was also taught that broken women do things with their sexuality that whole women do not. That women mostly sin when they are afraid. But the whole time they're afraid, they'll usually put on a brave face and act like they're in control and are empowered. But that it's all an act. So basically, I think that I was programmed as a child not to kick a person while they're down. Now, as I say all of this, I'm aware of many failures in those arenas. But in this area of sexual predation, which is what pornography is, I think what has slowed me down 
on what has been essentially a generational ethical genocide for men my age and younger. Um, I think what has slowed me down is this sense of sacredness for wounded people, a reverence for broken people. So that, this is because this is what happens. The broken person will tell you that you will walk through life as a young man and a broken person will come in front of you, usually on a computer screen these days, although it used to be a magazine in the woods uh, that you would just randomly find. Thanks, devil. And uh, the broken person, the broken woman will say, use me. That's what I'm here for. Use me. And it takes a certain awareness of the soul of broken people, the reality of woundedness, to slow down long enough to say, well, I would be quite happy to use you, but I would be using a broken person. I would be using my strength against your weakness. I would, I would be kicking you while you were down. And yeah, you're, you're feigning, you're feigning interest. You're feigning interest. But that's what broken people do. They lie to themselves and then they lie to everybody else. It's just a part of the deal. It's a part of like, that's a part of just generic poverty, by the way. Lying. Because if you told yourself the truth, you probably wouldn't be in the situation you're in most of the time. So you've got to walk through all the lies to love these people. We lie to ourselves too, by the way. I'm not... But basically, I think that if I were to talk to parents about like... Because one of the goals I would love to see is my daughters are, are of dating age, as you may know. Uh, one of the things I would love to see for, for your, your little daughters is that when they get to be my daughter's age, they don't have to sort through a stack of men who have been sexually broken before they were 22. So what would I say is like one of the things that maybe you haven't heard about before in this, it would be this. Do not think that if you create a culture in your home where you walk on the backs of the poor where you disregard the broken, where you label them as unsafe, inconvenient, and uncomfortable, do not think that one day your child will grow up to have a biblical ethic that will enable them to deal with broken people. Like, we've got to regard a broken person as a sacred thing. It changes so much. For me, I really do wonder if that has slowed me down it certainly isn't anything else. Like, it's definitely not me. But has that slowed me down? I, I, I can remember times when it has. When, like, a, a concern for someone at the bottom has kept me from using them. And I don't just mean sexually. I mean all sorts of things. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. And that's why he's so upset. <laughs> It's like their failure to discern Jesus at the table is most manifest by their failure to love those people who have no bread or wine to bring to the table. It's crazy to me, but it's true. Like people brought their own bread and wine. I'm so glad we don't have to do that. Because like, I'm so glad it's just assumed. Kent Banning's going to do that for us. It, it, does, it actually deals with problems. Like I, I realized as I studied this passage, like, oh, well, that's one of the reasons why we do this. So the situation you've got to remember back then was that food scarcity was just a thing. It was just a part of life. 
it was just a fundamental reality of both poverty and sometimes not poverty. Sometimes the middle class struggled depending on famine and whatnot. So food scarcity is this issue. And what's happening is they're bringing the food from home to, to, to celebrate the Lord's table. And there are some people who don't have food. They don't have any food to bring. And so what's happening is this sort of, I could always tell the tenor of a good sleepover from a bad sleepover when I was a teenager. Because the, we all brought snacks, you know, Little Debbie's, Doritos, those things. You know, we all brought the snacks. But you would sometimes go to some kid's house who thought that the whole idea was that we were all going to eat only our own snacks. I was like, well, that's just dumb. Like, I could do that at home. So you always knew it was a good sleepover when there was just this, like, group pile of Doritos and Little Debbies. Well, somehow, as the Corinthians participated in the Lord's table, they did this perverted version where they're all like, okay, you eat your bread and your wine, and you eat your bread and your wine, and no, you didn't have any? Like, sorry. And there's all this disorder. What's disorder? Disorder is a lack of discernment. It's hasty lacks of, lack of discernment. There's all this disorder. And where does, where does the order come from? How do you bring order into chaos? Like, how do you bring order into disorder? How do you slow things down? Well, there's somebody in your life right now, you may not even know them yet, who walks slower than you do. Walk with them. Their, their, their financial walk is slower than you. Their, their capacities are slower than you. Their intellectual capacities are slower than you. Their physical capacities are slower than you. There's somebody in your life who's slower than you in some way. And heaven forbid you don't learn to walk with someone who's slower than you. Because what will you do? What will you do with all that speed? You'll drive yourself right into a tree. You'll, you'll shipwreck your faith. You'll, you'll crash on the rocks. Speed isn't what this is about. It's about discernment. And here's the crazy thing, and I, don't, I still don't know, whether, I don't know where the egg and the chicken are in this text exactly. But I just know this. If they had regard for the poor, they would have slowed down. Because they would have had to. They would have had to care for one another in a deliberate way and make sure that everybody had what was necessary and so forth. And in slowing down, they would have had to discern. Now, you could flip that the other way and still get there. You could say that if they really understood that this was Jesus' body, if they were really discerning Jesus' body, they would know they should share. Same, same thing, really, right? The point is, is that Paul is preaching a radical, but it's not radical, it's like total just gospel ethic, that in order for us to actually participate in the Lord's table, we must have our relational house in order so that there is not any kind of ongoing instance of us stepping on the backs of people who are weaker, slower, dumber, poorer than us. Like, that's just like a necessity. You can't do this right if you're using people. That's when this doesn't become the Lord's table anymore. One of the interesting things about this whole idea of having an ethic to care for the poor is, so there's this passage in, the old, in, in, in Proverbs that says, I, I, was, I was young, now I'm old. I've never seen a man who was faithful to the poor. I've never seen his children begging bread. It's this idea that God blesses people who, are, who care for the poor. There's this interesting moment in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes drunk. I'm sorry, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So what do you do 
if you have a whole jug of wine, but you don't share it. You get drunk. Do you understand that sharing is God's safety net for your soul? Do you understand like that, that that's not for them only? It's for you. It slows you down. It weakens you in the ways you need to be weakened so that you can actually discern this world the right way. So what functionally keeps you from destroying yourself with too much of a good thing? That's a huge question because you all have too much of a good thing in your life. There's something in your life that's, that's too much of it. There are probably many things in your life that's too much of it. What do you do with too much of a good thing? And how do you let make sure that that too much of a good thing doesn't make you drunk on it? Well, you share it. Like, see how love slows you down and that's exactly what you need? You don't need a whole jug of wine. That's not good for you. But, but you should have some wine. So what do you do when you have too much free time? Because it's not good for you. Some of you are just laughing because you have like 12 children and you homeschool and sell Tupperware and Avon on the side and make your own bread. And it's like, I don't have any time. Some of you have too much free time. What do you do if you have too much money? Again, some of you are laughing. What do you do if you have too much food? What do you, here's, here's one I really want to land. So please soften your hearts for a moment. This is going to hurt. What do you do if you have too much order? Because you might. You see, this whole principle, and this is, this is just true throughout Scripture and true in life in general, is like you want to get your life ordered, yes, but if you don't allow any fresh, new, unpredictable things to come into your life, you stagnate and become corrupted. So some of you have been working really hard to get your life as predictable and orderly as possible, and it's actually going to make your children not very smart because they're not going to be able to handle new things. Right? Like, what do you do with too much order? Some of you have too much order. Some of you have too much control. Your lives are too neat. So what do you do with that? Well, you go find a person who has no order. And you give them some of your order. And as soon as you expose your order to their disorder, you have less order. It's hard, I think that's the hardest thing in caring for broken people. Is that it's really opening up what is not your, your kind of ordered world to their chaotic world. And it scares you to death. But, you know, God tells the storms to be quiet. You know, it's okay. He's in charge, you know. So their hastiness and their greed and their lack of discernment was somehow directly connected to their improper regard for the poor. So this examination kind of looks like twofold. Number one, discern the deeper meaning. Discern Jesus in the gospel. And number two, discern whether the radical mercies of Jesus that he has poured out on you are continuing to flow into the lives of others. I think that's how we, I think that's what it means to discern the table rightly. I think that's what it means to examine ourselves. Do I see Jesus in this? 
It is all of the riches and kindness and grace that has flowed into my life, flowing into the lives of others. If not, repent before taking the elements and ask the Holy Spirit what His gracious next step would be for you. You don't have to have it all figured out in order to participate in the Lord's table. None of us would participate in the Lord's table if that were true. But you do have to have a soft heart to the realities presented herein. There was one person who participated in the Lord's table, the original Lord's table, who for him wasn't the Lord's table. And it came down fundamentally because this man named Judas was using the Lord's table as a pretext to to ultimately consume his brother. To ultimately betray his brother. So, I want to conclude by just putting this forward to you. Throughout the scriptures, all sin is a false feast. That's sort of the that's sort of the idea that we get all the way back from Genesis. Sin promises to fulfill you, and it leaves you hollow and hungry. Uh, sin promises to feed you, and it feeds on you. All sin is just a false feast. It's just like a big lie. It's a big mirage. It's you know. It's just telling you that you're going to be satisfied and you won't be. You'll be emptier as a result. And a lot of these false feasts, a lot of the more common ones that we fall into have to do with hurting other people. Like lying to someone is a false feast. Because the, the, the flesh, your flesh is telling you, like, if you just tell this person an alternative version of what actually happened, you'll be okay. Well, you're hurting that person. You're using that person. You know what you're using? You're using their goodwill. Like you're actually like hurting them. You're stepping on them. Using someone is a false feast. You think, well, you know, if I just use this person to get what I want, I'll, I'll be okay. No, you won't. You'll feel terrible afterward. You'll be hollow and empty, and that person will be even more broken than they were before. Bitterness is a false feast. You get this consum- consuming idea that, this person has wronged you and nothing can, nothing, and like all of life's problems are due to this person wronging you. It's all a false feast. It, you, the, the lie is, is that somehow if this person got their comeuppance, you would be happy. No, you would not be happy. Slander and gossip are false feasts. Judging is a false feast. Like if you're ever feeling bad about yourself, just, just judge someone else. And instantly you get a little, you get a little perky to your step, right? It's all a lie. It's not going to fill you. It's not going to satisfy you. All of this false feast language terminates when the, or not terminates, but sort of crescendos when Isaiah says, why are you spending money on what doesn't satisfy? Why are you buying meals that aren't meals? They're actually poisons. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the false feast. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let me pray. Gracious God, would you give us